You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, y'all. Spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic, a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley, not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, and St. Augustine. So if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. In the children's animated film series, Despicable Me, the villain grew is assisted by a horde of nearly identical disposable servants called minions. This type of character, the faceless rabble whose powers derive from sheer numbers, whose identity is cloaked in the overwhelming banality of numerical superfluousness, whose own goals are as unexplored as their fashion sense, these are minions. Their plight is as old as literature. And in this episode of Monster Talk, we're going to peel off the domino masks and identical black and white striped shirts and learn a little bit more about this unsung backup band of villainy. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland. It's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Monster Talk. Thanks for downloading another episode of Monster Talk. I wanted to make a few announcements before we get started with today's interview. First, I want to thank all of you who've decided to become patrons over at Patreon to support the show. Karen and I really appreciate it. As I've mentioned recently, I'm going to be attending CryptidCon in Kentucky September 9th and 10th. And that's only possible because of the kind donations from listeners like you. You've made it possible for me to attend a monster convention without making Bigfoot-sized impressions in my family's budget. So I need to thank you for that. My co-host, Karen Stolzno, has a new short story out on the Amazon Kindle. You can find it by going to the hosts page at monstertalk.org, or you can follow this handy shortcut URL. That's bit.ly, B-I-T dot L-Y, forward slash unforeseen circumstances. That's bit.ly forward slash unforeseen circumstances. It's only 99 cents and is an exciting tale of antiques and retrocognition. Check it out. 
Karen and I have been doing a lot of research in preparation for upcoming episodes. We have a new episode on The Most Haunted City in England, as well as a look at Scott Poole's new H.P. Lovecraft biography coming up, and I'm especially excited about work we're doing on a multi-episode arc, which will cover magic and monsters. It's going to take us through grimoires, demons, witches, and will take us from the shores of Loch Ness to the rocket engineering of the Jet Propulsion Lab in California. I'm excited to share that research soon. All of that would not be possible again without the support of our Patreon pledgers and the very, very kind people who have bought us research books off our Monster Talk Amazon wish list. So I just wanted to give you a hint at what's coming out next. Today's interview is with Kate Mongrain and Dr. David Perlmutter. David is a longtime listener to Monster Talk, and when he reached out to me about the possibility of discussing the role of minions as monsters, I was intrigued. Like our upcoming discussion of Lovecraft in a few weeks, I think we'll follow this one under Special Literary Edition. It is good to occasionally get back to my English major roots, and I hope you enjoy the discussion. Monster Talk. First of all, let me say welcome to David and Kate, and thank you for joining us. Yes. And thank you for reaching out to us, because I think this is a really interesting topic. It is. It's a huge topic. Before we get into it, could you guys uh, introduce yourselves and give us a little background on yourselves? My name is Kate Mongrain, and I completed my master's at Texas Tech in May of 2015. And since then, I've been teaching full-time at Texas Tech, focusing on Latin. And I'm David Perlmutter, and I'm a professor at a dean of the College of Media and Communication here at Texas Tech. And... When I once upon a time I taught regularly, I taught political communication, and that's what I've been studying for 25 years. Basically, persuasion, especially with visual images. Neat. Again. Yeah. With those backgrounds, how did you both get interested in today's topic, henchmen? Well, the uh, call went out for a book on this topic. It's it's a, called The Dark Side about villains in comic books, graphic art, other popular culture, which I thought was a very good topic. And I happen to know the co-editors because they're both here at Texas Tech. In fact, one of them is the chair of our journalism department in our college. And I was just talking to him a little bit about, well, do you know, is there anything written about the most fascinating people on the screen and in, in books and such, for me, has been not necessarily the supervillain or the superhero, but the sidekicks and henchmen. And I just was sort of curious, had anybody written anything about henchmen? Apparently, there had been some discussion on uh, listservs and chat rooms and things, but there hadn't really been a lot of work done on henchmen. And I, I have a lot of questions that I'd certainly ask henchmen if I met them, like, what's up with you guys? What motivates you to be a henchman? And, and then Kate and I had been working on another project related to the uh, ancient world and visual display of, of triumphs and military processions in the ancient world. And we just started talking about the Myrmidons, the, the Achilles' henchmen, who you could argue are henchmen zero in literature. And we came up with the idea to con- compare henchmen zero to probably one of the latest incarnations of henchmen in the most modern media, the digital game, uh, The Wild Hunt in The Witcher. And Kate could talk a little bit about uh, who are The Wild Hunt, because I think a lot of people probably know Myrmidons vaguely, but maybe The Wild Hunt isn't everybody's familiar example. I, I wound up getting into sort of both topics by accident. 
because I, I came on originally as uh, David's research assistant for this project, and then it wound up being uh, built into a, a co-authorship. And it happened that uh, a friend of mine was really, really devoted to the Witcher series and the games, and I knew a lot about them as sort of background to this. And so then that led to a bunch of reading on the graphic novels, the novels on which the game was based, and uh, filling out my knowledge of the sort of literary background to this uh, new media presentation of the of the characters. So, so for our listeners who haven't played Witcher or read the books, what what is that uh, property about? It's a game series that is heavily Polish in its influences and it, in its styling. And in this series, there's a world that has been briefly conjoined with another world on which m- monsters dwell. And the monsters from that other realm become a sort of pestilence upon the world that the Witcher inhabits. And so these figures called Witchers, who are specially sort of scientifically developed uh, monster hunters uh, go out into the world to rid the world of monsters. And this particular game, uh, The Witcher 3, focuses on one of these characters, uh, a man named Geralt, and his his quest through the world. And the wild hunt, which is sort of the arch nemesis that he faces in this game, is a group of uh, sort of spectral riders um, from another world who um, are trying to attack his sort of adoptive daughter. And interestingly, Geralt himself used to be part of the Wild Hunt as a sort of captive. And so there's a, there's a lot of sort of folkloric background. There's uh, ties to mythology and a lot of sort of common narrative threads that you could find in other literature that gets played out in this game. Cool. So do you, uh, we actually talked about the wild hunt briefly in our, when our, our folklore episode, uh, because it has come up a couple of times. It's a really interesting idea in folklore. Um, does that tie in? I mean, do you consider uh, the wild hunt, those characters also, well, I guess not the leader of the wild hunt, but like the rest of them, would they also be henchmen? That's sort of what, what we were arguing is that in the way that they interact with the world, in the way they interact with their leaders and the way they interact with their enemies, they function as henchmen, uh, without sort of independent motivation apart from that of their leaders. I guess we should uh, really begin with some kind of definition of henchmen. So what are henchmen? We've got lots of different kinds of them, but overall, what what are they? Right. And anybody growing up within popular culture in the West can probably fill in lots of examples. The, The classic henchmen that you think of immediately are the henchmen in the sort of comic book, big, big pop culture. So like, the Joker's henchman. And if you think of the, the first Batman movie with Jack Nicholson as the Joker, I actually bought, there was a sell, they were selling the jackets of the Joker's henchman at the time the movie came out. And I was so impressed by that, that I bought one. I still own one today. So I guess I'm an honorary Joker henchman. And so he has these henchmen and what did they do? They, they hang around and he gives them orders like go kill somebody 
they are killed at a very high rate themselves. I, I don't see, I, henchmen basically stand around a lot and the, the hero comes in and plows through 20 of them before getting to the supervillain. They conduct, you know, raids on innocent people. They just do all sorts of, of things for the, the supervillain. But we started asking the question, like, what exactly is the deal? Like, do they have a health plan? You know, what, what's their motivation? You know, sort of Dustin Hoffman and Tootsie, you know, wh- wh- why exactly are they henchmen? What do they get out of it? What are they promised out of it? And so uh, w- once you start asking those questions, the answers get very different, uh, but also with a lot of commonalities for any popular culture property. Yeah, they've explored that a little bit in uh, the Venture Brothers. They, they <laughs> which is oh a, yeah, it's a cartoon I like to watch quite a bit. The um, I, I, I'm thinking about you know, and this is kind of sad because you're thinking of Batman uh, today. Adam West's death was announced, and uh, I think the uh, the Batman '66 uh, henchmen with the you know the black and white striped shirts are kind of the first ones I can think of growing up. You know. Um, how, how in, in your, in, and we do this a lot when we think about monsters, especially when we're not doing a specific folklore or, you know, uh, a real world cryptid or whatever. Um, it, it becomes like, there's a lot of questions about classifying things like w- w- categorizing, you know, um, in fact, uh, from a scientific perspective, one of our upcoming episodes, we want to talk a little bit about how science actually groups animals. You know, that whole Linnaean binomial nomenclature stuff uh, is of, of great interest to me. But going back to that, do, when I think of henchmen, I also think of minions. Do you think of them as the same sort of thing? Yeah, I, I think they're just variations on the same uh, species. <laughs> you know, so I mean, they're, they're bovids or they're cervids, you know, I mean, uh, of, of a kind. Uh, there are some commonalities. I mean, one of the reasons we saw the connection to the Myrmidons is one of my favorite words, implacable, is that henchmen tend to just follow orders and just plow in there. Like, you know, you can imagine the, the typical fight scene where, I don't know, the, the, the super mole guy is fighting Superman and Superman, who who is invincible, except for like a you know Krypton spear or something, but but he'll say, okay, go go grab him, and they'll throw themselves at Superman, and of course be tossed into walls and things. And you're going like, if I were the henchman, I would be like, well, wait a minute, that's Superman. What, what, that's crazy. I'm not going to go grab him. But 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 they tend to do that. And 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 the parallel, of course, is to in the military, you know, people being ordered to to do and to die and to not reason why. Uh, to street gangs, other sort of groups of people who will often uh, commit what uh, anthropologists call coalition, coalitional killing, you know, uh, or, or acts to, of, of violence together. And also doing things which, you know, if they were sitting as individuals, sort of judging the rationality or the plausibility of whether they should do something might, might have made another choice. But because they were in a small group, of kin people who are all dressed the same and apparently thinking the same, they just go ahead and do it. So I think there's a lot to unpack there, you know, anthropology, sociology, Dr. Schultz, psychology, on how people uh, think about uh, being a, a hench person. I think it's a, uh, actually surprisingly uh, astute deconstruction of this tradition in children's movies. So uh, the... Uh, the usual idea of the supervillain taking precedence and everything has sort of been deconstructed and undermined 
by the the Minions movie, which uh, I've watched many, many times due to babysitting a three-year-old nephew. <laughs> and it's interesting because they sort of flip the tradition on its head and the Minions actively seek out who's going to be their leader for their own interests. And they wind up consistently undermining the cause of their leaders, mm-hmm. um, which I thought was a hilarious reversal of the sort of type that you expect from a minion or henchman. Yeah, I've got a, a two-year-old, and uh, so I'm watching uh, children's movies again and again and again, the same ones, and I'm just, uh, just in thinking about it in preparing for this interview, it is astounding how many movies have henchmen, whether it's Angry Birds with the, the pigs uh, or Despicable Me and the minions um, or even a movie like Megamind with the brain bots. It just seems like so many children's movies have these min- have these uh, henchmen. Well, and, and Star right. Wars and, and the Borg. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and Star Trek. Yeah, and, and Star Wars is, is a good example because, okay, so I think everybody who's alive on planet Earth is aware of some of the issues with stormtroopers, right? First, you know, they're issued this armor, which doesn't actually, has never stopped anything. Apparently, you can throw a twig at a stormtrooper battalion. You're going to take out at least five of them. Uh, they can't shoot straight. So that's also that's all obviously become classics within the tropes of, of henchmen, is their inability to actually do real damage besides, like, to random civilians or something. But certainly to the hero, henchmen don't seem to be very effective. Uh, and the other, but the other part about stormtroopers that that's always interested me is I, I know within the Star Wars, like canon and legends, and that's apparently those have shifted over time. Some of the origins of stormtroopers and the psychology of stormtroopers has changed. So there's not like one complete story of like why somebody is a stormtrooper or not. But they never really make clear a lot of the basics of being a henchman. Like, again, I, I want to know, is there a health plan? Because I really would ask this question if somebody wanted me to be your henchman. Like, you know, is there – do you pay for my funeral? You know, I mean, w- 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 a lot of these things are obviously not worked out. <laughs> right. I, I, you know, and, and some of that has to come from, I guess, narrative pressure. You, you don't want to start off with an emboss. You, you want to have, like, levels of – yeah. <laughs> waves of monsters and i realize that's a video game narrative but but i mean in any any sort of thing where you have a struggle you know as a writer you're, you're going to want to have uh, a threat that isn't the primary threat so that that your uh, protagonists are in some kind of danger because we love peril as a species right <laughs> so i i henchmen are uh, they're they i guess they quickly fill that niche uh if that's the case, are there real-world examples? I suspect because we're talking about uh, these sort of uh, Western literature concepts, and they do exist in, in all cultures as far as I know. Uh, but Yeah, that's a question I've got too when yeah, yeah. we can get our answer. I was going to say, it, it, are there real-world counterparts to these that we could think of uh, so that uh, my more picky listeners who want to know, well, where am I going to run into this? You know, where, where is that? Where what, What's the, the – and I, I, I think the answer is kind of dark, but let's hear what you think. Yeah, and so uh, about uh, two decades ago, I wrote a book called Visions of War, which was a history of the visualization of warfare, because it's a topic I'm very interested in. And I was looking across many different cultures and time periods and saying, you know, how how people pictured war and 
were there any commonalities? Uh, I looked at certain thematic topics like the war leader, enemies, comrades. And one of them was, so I started doing this research on what we know about bands of brothers and comrades in arms and sort of the, the, the psychology, the sociology, but also the chemistry of people being together in a very dangerous situation. And there's a lot of very interesting work that sort of gives an, an undergirding to the idea of why henchmen are henchmen that's maybe not articulated as much in the movies, but, but is a superstructure that actually makes sense in real life. So to just take a couple of things. For example, yeah, one of the ways to build unit cohesion is you dress people alike. I mean, armies have figured this out for a long time. I mean, they're a no- Neolithic... Uh, wall art and and outdoor art that shows groups of hunter gatherers and small bands of uh, primitive tribes people and I, I'm not using I'm not using the word majority but you know pre pre civilization pre high technology who are fighting with each other and you notice that the two groups are dressed differently I mean they have different he- headbands you know they have different spears they have different loincloths. I mean, they started dressing according to my tribe versus your tribe very early as part of fighting. Uh, music, chanting, songs. They're, they're all, basically, since people started fighting, we self-segmented into groups that you could identify. And there's a lot of very interesting research as well in physical anthropology about how this has real benefits. I mean, you, you know, everybody says, you know, you get benefits from having friends, right? If you don't have friends, you probably are a sadder person. You may be physically less healthy. In wartime, you've heard over and over again, veterans say, yeah, it was a terrible being in war, but I still remember and I still am in contact with the great friends I had. I miss the people I lost. Uh, th- there's a lot of research on veterans who will say, you know, the friendships formed in the platoon, in battle, were the most important things in their life. There's research in anthropology on chimpanzees, which I find very interesting. Oxytocin is the hormone that has been known and called the cuddle hormone because like the more of it you have up raised levels, you feel good. Well, there's these anthropologists who study chimpanzee individuals and groups, and they find that when you're in a group of chimpanzees, and you're facing another group with a possible fight occurring, your oxytocin levels rise if you're in a group because you get sort of sucker for being around other chimps. Like, they're in it with you, okay? And then then this other part, uh, there's a, um, uh, hormones which cause uh, stress decrease if you're around in, in a f- confrontation, if you're around close buddy chimpanzees who are going to fight with you. So there's a sort of a biochemical basis of, yeah, it's actually a, a pretty good idea that if you're going to be in a fight, you should have a band of brothers who are probably dressed alike, although probably in giant zoot suits with yellow, big yellow hats is maybe not the best, you know, battlefield costume. But, you know. <laughs> but so there's, there's a lot of interesting undergirding to the idea that, uh, th- there are some benefits to being henchmen if you're going to be in this business in the first place. Are henchmen monsters? I think that a lot of that boils down to perspective and very, very much so for the ancient world because it's really important to remember that for the ancient world, the idea of a hero has nothing whatever to do with morality. So 
being a hero was entirely rooted in having divine parentage. And so there are lots of heroes that are really immoral people. And they either are considered heroes because they have divine parents like Achilles, uh, or they in some way become heroes because of divine intervention. So there's a hero, for example, who pulls down a schoolhouse that's on top of the children inside it, kills them all, then hides in a temple and when they come to look for him, he's vanished and they say, Oh, well, obviously Athena protected him. So he must be a hero blessed by the gods. And so it's problematic to, to think of them as distinctly heroes or villains in the ancient world, because a lot of it boiled down to whose side they were on. And the same would be true of their followers. So, for example, Achilles does a lot of things that we would consider monstrous. So uh, think, for example, of his treatment of Hector's body. After Hector dies, he defiles the body and then places it underneath his seat. And so that when Hector's father Priam comes to visit, he can see the mangled body of his son underneath Achilles' chair, basically. And for him, the Myrmidons, his henchmen, are willing to do whatever he he asks of them because they're sworn to be loyal to him. And so some of the actions that they undertake might, by the opposing side, be seen as monstrous. But for the Greek side, would not be considered so because it's in pursuit of their cause. Does that answer your question? It does. So if, if I understand you correctly, you're saying that the monstrous qualities of the minion would be entirely dependent upon the actions of the uh, leader. So they would be basically giving up their own ethics in favor of following uh, obediently whatever is ordered. I would, I would say so. And especially for ancient texts, there's very little uh, emphasis on any characters that are not considered noble and or heroic. So, for example, one of the only characters who's actually given a name among the common people, not, not among the Myrmidons, but among the other uh, soldiers of the Greek force, is a man named Thersites. And because he's common, he's described as being really, really ugly. And for the Greek conception of the way the world worked if you were truly noble you were described as kalos kagathos which means beautiful and good and that was sort of seen as the core of nobility if you were beautiful and good and if you weren't among the nobility you were sort of ugly and bad oh yeah that's <laughs> That's a great thing to add to a business card, by the way, Kalos Kagathos. I have it on mine, you know, just to... Yeah, yeah, I was thinking it would look good on my shield. Uh, I don't really have a shield, but if I had one, that would be the kind of thing I'd like to have on it. I'm glad we've moved beyond that and that we don't do that with uh, the uh, society and, like, layer it, where we say that, you know, popular and wealthy people are beautiful and other people are ugly. Uh, (laughs) Kardashians, I'm sorry, I'm okay. 
<laughs> just think it instead. Well, the halo effect that you're talking about, I mean, it, it's it's something that's been very well researched, and it is fascinating that basically if you are taken within a society to be physically more attractive, male or female, and, and, and it almost doesn't matter your race or your ethnicity, it, you know, if you're attractive, you know, you, you, juries will be more likely to find you innocent. People will think of you as smarter. Uh, it's, it's, it's. The Greeks were not making this stuff up. They were recognizing phenomena among them and, and putting tales and myths to to explain them. And so it's it's fascinating to see over now some twenty five hundred years, twenty eight hundred years, the the continuity of some of these uh, principles and and discussions. Because if you think about it. Most heroes today uh, have many degrees of immorality. I mean, they do stuff all the time, which if you sat down and had a committee of uh, an IRB, <laughs> you know, to discuss what Superman, like, like, you know, you did this. And honestly, like, you ended up destroying six buildings to stop this guy from ro robbing the bank. I mean, maybe in retrospect, it wasn't a very good idea. Well, that winds up being a, a central point in uh, the one of the latest Marvel movies, Civil War, uh, they they wind up having the heroes in two separate factions, one faction that sees them as responsible for a lot of wrong in the world, and the other one that, sa that says more or less that the ends justify the means. And the collateral damage caused by superheroes is a, a major plot point in the film because of this, this sort of integral question. You know, is it acceptable for people to do ethical things in unethical ways. I'm interested in uh, just henchmen across cultures and, and the perceptions of henchmen. Uh, and I know in this kind of a society, um, people will often look at henchmen as being brainwashed or being dehumanized, it being a bad thing somehow. Um, and in anthropology and linguistics, you've got the idea of individualist cultures um, versus collectivist cultures. So an individualist culture would be um, like Australia or um, in the, the United States. And collectivist cultures are often found in Asian countries where it's more about society uh, rather than the focusing on the individuals. Um, so I'm just wondering, did you do any kind of cross-cultural research into henchmen and how they're perceived in other countries as maybe more of a positive thing? Well, my background was looking at, in war, how different cultures, countries, periods perceived the role of the comrades fighting other groups. Right. So there you did see some of what you're talking about. However, you know, that distinction between individualist and collectivist breaks down in, in wartime. Uh, and so, for example, I mean, you could say, yes, the, the Australians are famously individualist, but also they're, they're famous and admired the world over as very tough fighters within the Australian mm -hmm. army, going back to the, you know, the legends of Gallipoli and so on. Right. Right. Yes. So, you know, you'd say, well, gee, how could you be an individualist, but also terrific in an infantry platoon? So mm -hmm. those things don't necessarily contradict each other if you have unified action that you're all agreeing on. Yeah, like you got the idea of mateship in Australia is very important. Right. My mate. 
Exactly. And so now the 20th century, you could argue, was the, the century where henchmen almost destroyed the world. I mean, you mentioned, Blake, about following orders. I mean, older readers, older viewers, listeners will remember that that was the Nuremberg defense, right? Is that, you know, people who did these unbelievable, uh, appalling acts of, of genocide and inhumanity said, well, I was following orders. And there's a lot of research, of course, on that about, you know, what, what does it mean to follow orders? There's the famous experiment by Stanley Milgram, those ex- where they hooked people up and, and pretended that they were giving electroshocks. To, it was, they weren't really doing it, but found that people would basically kill others if you told them to do it. Now, there's always been this question about that experiment, whether they were following orders or they're just conforming. And henchmen are conformists. They're, I mean, literally... Audiovisually, they are conformists. Sure, the, you know the Nazis were conformists. The uh, the the Stalinists, uh, the the Pol Pot regime. Pretty much everywhere you see genocide occurring, including genocide that maybe wasn't, you know, genocide as organized as it was in the 20th century and the 19th century. Australian Aborigines, American Indians. I mean, many places there have been genocides that weren't like bureaucratically very efficient, but they, right. they still had the same outcome. You had henchmen, you had people saying, yeah, I'm just going to do this and I don't have a problem with it. And I'll just obey orders and, and do what everybody else is doing, which again, retroactively, we look back and go, boy, that was completely immoral. How could anybody have done that? Right. Mm-hmm. With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti. And I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about. The stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, Consciousness, Philosophy, UFOs, Ghosts, or say Bigfoot. So who's to say that there's not alien species that are Sasquatch? Like I've seen a ghost, and I would hear something walking and breathing. Maybe every path is right. I will accept as a premise that every path is right. That is a face on Mars. Eyes, nose. It kind of looked like Wilson the volleyball. Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing, and I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audiobook. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand yeah. and probably won't understand. That's our whole show. So join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon. I think of, um, there's other real world counterparts I, I keep thinking about are, are cultists. Uh, or, and when I, I don't mean like in the Lovecraftian sense, but I mean, <laughs> like in real life where people, sub, uh, they subsume their own will to follow the rules of a, a cult leader. They, the conformity is a big part of that and, um, and giving up your own decision making to follow someone else's. And, um, it, well, there have Jim Jones. Yeah, Jim exactly. Jones, Jonestown. I mean, I guess the best yeah. example from my earlier life, there's just these people who, 
I mean, there was a if you read the story, it wasn't as simple as him saying, "Hey, everybody, go kill yourself." I mean, there was an, a massive amount of intimidation and indoctrination and trickery, and mm-hmm. it wasn't just you know everybody commits suicide. But we have many examples of you know cults, right? Who just everybody kills themselves or kills other people because the the glorious leader tells them to. Yeah. Well, I think in yeah. a in a in a sort of milder way, I think that increasingly social media sort of has people doing this to themselves. So increasingly people are isolated in sort of echo chambers of thought. And there's a very strong push from within among all the members sort of policing themselves to have everybody conform to the same ideas on policy, the same um, standards for what's acceptable speech, what's acceptable behavior, that sort of thing. And I think that um, there have been a few different um, recent articles that have been talking about this sort of effect of a sort of shame culture in social media that reinforces um, belief norms and uh, norms and actions among certain groups or cliques. I actually wrote this down before the yeah. call. <laughs> Do Twitter shame mobs count as a form of minion or form of mm. henchman? And it seems like because they don't even have to be organized, like it, they're kind of a self-organizing thing. When when a person is identified as a target who has a, a performed something that the other group disagrees with or considers to be shame worthy, then this there are people who will activate, and I. The shaming thing, I don't know how much it really, um, ha- like, I know it like, could be personally devastating to be on the receiving end of something like that. Um, but it, it doesn't have to have an organizer. And, and, and so these, that, that's one of the scarier things. I, I've, I think I've been uh, hopefully saying clever things, but maybe just droning on about uh, the, the echo chamber of, of social media for a couple of years now on the show because I, I think it's... Um, uh, potentially a dangerous thing how easy it is to become convinced it's already simple enough to become convinced that you're right about stuff but nothing knocks it into place like having other people say yeah you're definitely right about that and whatever the thing is um that you believe in uh, being in a place where no one questions you and everyone supports you while it may feel great is is no way to find out what's the truth yeah i mean if you think about it all of us are potential henchmen I mean, I, I, did, I think all of us could possibly be in some situation where we act negatively as part of a group. It just we have it, maybe we haven't been in that situation yet, but certainly social media is one of those places. That you, you, there was a famous uh, example I give is that when I talk about because my most recent research has been on ISIS and and their recruiting to be henchmen for them, and the, and their videos pretty pretty impressive stuff they do to recruit young men to go fight for them is that a lot of the, the traditional hate groups in society were really reeling and, and not doing very well. I mean, the, uh, the Ku Klux Klan, things like that, by the late 1980s, partly because it was getting harder and harder to get a couple of hundred people together in the same place to all agree with you on something that was just had become socially unacceptable. But then the Internet came along, and now... As we know, if, if you, if I'm, a, I'm a frequent listener to the wonderful podcast, Skeptoid, and then your podcast. We know that there is no belief that is so insane that you can't find a website somewhere that will tell you it's true. 
and, yes. and <laughs> find other people in the chat room to say, oh, yeah, I, I knew Finland didn't exist. Absolutely. You know, everybody agrees. You know, why do these sheeple not see that Finland doesn't exist? And it's all a conspiracy of the Japanese and the Russians. So we're all henchmen uh, inside. Uh, it's just a question of what's going to release that henchman quality. Yeah, that that uh, ties into a lot of uh, discussions I've been involved in recently um, about power politics. And um, I imagine if, if you're feeling unpowerful or weak, that, that becoming a henchman would give you a sense of greater power, even if you have to give up a sense of agency, right? So, um, yeah, I think, I, unfortunately, I think while I like the fictional henchman, most of the real world examples I can think of are pretty terrible. <laughs> so. Well, there's there's a famous passage on this. Um, you know, here's a little little funny funny interesting fact of history. You know, when Hitler died in the bunker, among the last uh, German uh, uniformed soldiers who were defending him were Frenchmen. Uh, they were Frenchmen in the Charlemagne Legion of the Waffen SS, which was the military wing of the SS. And so you're thinking, well, what were these Frenchmen doing in Berlin, giving up their lives fighting for Hitler? Well, they joined for many reasons. And there was a, a particular one of them who wrote, uh, he survived, he, obviously, he wrote a memoir. And he talked about just being entranced by this picture of the uh, SS soldier, and he described them as these beings, talking about ancient heroes, these beings without flaw or decay, and they'd live forever, and they were just beautiful, and they'd, they'd get all these wonderful guns and fight these wonderful battles, which, by the way, is ISIS's recruiting campaign, too, as they say, hey, why play a video game or, or watch an action movie? If you come here and fight for us, you can be in a video game and be in a, a, your own action movie wow. so there, there's some transcendent qualities there which i guess you know again when i if i were agamemnon recruiting for this war against troy i mean i'd use some of the same techniques and probably did and to be one of achilles's myrmidons kw you, you know you can just imagine you you got a lot of it i mean when you walked through a village and you were one of the myrmidons you probably got flowers you know thrown at you and it was pretty impressive well and uh, ancient culture is surprisingly comparable to social media culture because it's very, very much a shame culture. And reputation is central to interacting in ancient culture. So um, there are limited ways in which you can increase your reputation as an ancient Greek. And uh, warfare is one way. Uh, so you get the stories about, for example, the Spartans, you know, return with your shield or on it. That sort of extremely um, strong military identity. Uh, another culture that believes in a really heavily unified force of soldiers who don't have a lot of individual identity. And the other main way of increasing one's own personal excellence um, the word is kleos in Greek, like glory, um, is through athletics. And for the person who won, their name would be spread in the town. They would receive free food uh, for a year, I think. I think it was. And their names would go down sort of immortally uh, on the victor lists. But there was no number two. There's no second place. Either you won or you were a loser. And there's there's a lot of sort of infamy associated with being a loser. So, and wow. not having uh, 
long-term recognition. So now we have, we're so much more sophisticated now. We have Twitter and we have t- number of followers <laughs> and that's everything. Yeah. No. <laughs> you can imagine, I, I think Kate could write a really good Twitter feed of like the Greeks before the gate to Troy. Yeah, Troy sacked, you know, yeah. losers. <laughs> Bad. Uh, Free horse. <laughs> yeah, Greeks, Greeks left a horse outside. Looks good. Let's bring it in. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> The last, the last t- tweet by uh, the King of Troy. Yeah. Right. <laughs> now we sneak out of the rabbit. So, <laughs> well, I think it'd be interesting to talk a little bit more about uh, Hitler because that's uh, just uh, the the Holocaust and and um, everything that took place during the Second World War is just a very recent thing that's still uppermost in the minds of a lot of people who are still around today. Uh, and you were talking a little bit about, um, I guess, kind of levels of, of henchmen and getting towards or getting closer to the, the evil person. Uh, and I know um, I, I studied a lot of history at uh, university level and was very interested in uh, in World War II. And with um, the, the rise of, of Hitler, he had his various levels of people, of henchmen who were around him, uh, like the brown shirts initially. And he got rid of them because they were too powerful. Uh, and then he had the Schutzstaffel, the SS, after that. And he even had uh, other levels within the concentration camp camps. He had the Sonderkommando. Um, and they were actually prisoners who were metering out, uh, who, who were following orders. Um, so can you talk a little bit about the kind of different levels of power in relation to a leader? Yeah, and by the way, in each case, the uniforms got snappier and snappier. There, there's, yeah, there's they did. Really, there's this. I, I wrote an article many years ago. It was called "Facelifting the Death's Head," and it was about this sort of fascinating world of collecting uh, Nazi mer- memorabilia, which which is intrinsically in- interesting because the German the the Germans at that time they produced this unbelievable array of uniforms and cuff bands and regalia and signs and sign and, and and again you could just think in terms of you know put yourself in the audience that you're a young man and you, you know you've got a choice in life like you can continue working on your dad's farm or you know you can go to university and study or you can put on this amazing black uniform with you know silver piping with little death's heads on it and ride around on a big tank and and that 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 you know you can think about the intrinsic appeal of destruction. In fact, it was a really good book. I've put it on the the show notes list for you. Uh, Charles Sardner called Soldiers of Destruction, and he talked about some of the SS units there. About that, it was it was just an innate appeal uh, in destruction. Now now I'm not just picking on the Germans because of course the 20th century was the century of genocide in many countries. You know, it started out with a genocide in. Uh, Southwest Africa, the, the you know the Armenian genocide, the genocide in, of of Ukrainians and and non-communists in in Russia. I mean, it was former Yugoslavia. Yeah, I mean, there's a there's a lot of genocides to go around. That's why the 20th century has often been called you know the, the dark century of humankind. But but what ties them all together? You look at the people who were the henchmen for Stalin and his massive crimes. You know the. Sometimes they weren't uh, romantic people. They weren't. They weren't thinking about the uniform. They were just thinking about getting a little bit more food. They were cruel people. They, they, they were all sorts of people have signed up to be henchmen, but we seem to be very susceptible to it. I mean, it's happened so often that that it's not just the and in popular culture it's an anomaly because like you only see like a small group of people dressed in the 
the uniform of the day of henchmen. But the sad story of humanity is that thousands and thousands of groups of people or mil- hundreds of millions of people have signed up to be a henchman very happily and gladly. I think Hitler got in very early too. He had the Hitler youth. And so a lot of it was about socialization and indoctrination from an early age. True. Yes, absolutely. Uh, my, I'm, I'm this, I'm Greek on my mother's side and my grandfather was a military officer in the Greek army in world war one and uh, world war two. And he was still alive when I was a teenager and, and through translation, anyway, he, he described when the German army marched into Athens, you know, because they before they invaded Russia, they decided, I guess, a little diversion to, to attack Greece to help the Italians who were losing. Uh, and um, so the German army marched in. And, and the German army was not, as you you know heard in popular culture, it was not fully mechanized. It wasn't. They had a lot of horse-drawn carts and things like that. But when they did a parade, they put all the best-looking tanks and best-looking young men in the parade to awe the local population. So here was Greece which was, you know, basically a pretty backward country. It hadn't fully modernized yet. And you see these just rank upon rank of these very athletic young men. Well, they had been training for war since their tween days because the the Hitler youth, you know, which you could say was the German Boy Scouts, except the German Boy Scouts with the intention of warfare, right? So they were training to kill and be soldiers for, for almost... You know, nine or seven or eight years at least before the rest of Europe started saying, "Oh gosh, we better prepare for war." So, so physically, and this is where you know henchmen are very important, is their looks. Uh, the Germans just looked really good, especially with their modern machinery. And mm-hmm. I, and I, Kate, I, I guess you know it would be interesting. I have a question. I just I never asked you uh, if in in our article we have a picture. There's no pictures of Myrmidons. Like, obviously, photography didn't, didn't exist there. There's some vases which show Myrmidons, right? And then there's this famous warrior vase, which we'll, we provided a, a copy of, Blake, and I think it would be really neat to put in the show notes because it's, it's really – it shows an organized army around the time of the Trojan War. Again, we don't have, like, actual pictures of the Trojan War, but it's set at the exact same time from Mycenae from the, from the Trojan War. It's very interesting to look at it. They don't look very uh, – Scary, right, Kate? <laughs> <laughs> well, admittedly not, though uh, it, it's hard to, to judge the intent um, behind the artwork. But um, <laughs> those, those depictions of um, ancient soldiers, ancient common soldiers, tend to be uh, fairly lacking in personification. Mm-hmm. And it's more about sort of the idea of them than a concrete representation of a particular person. Um, and then for the people that do matter in the, the particular culture, so, you know, the, generally the heroes, the leaders, it's ma- made very, very clear through usually labeling and heavy <coughs> symbolism who they are and why they're important. Is it Whereas okay to reproduce that, uh, that piece of, like that photograph in our show notes? Uh, depends on whether you go by fair use since we're doing a critical appraisal I, I think it is but you know have your lawyers <laughs> <laughs> oh, we have no lawyers I, I know that the copyright on the original urn itself has expired <laughs> uh, well it sounds like henchmen either have to be scary looking or good looking well yeah. they certainly 
one thing is that they're in a uniform of some kind. And, and if you see that warrior vase, it's, it's actually fascinating. This is, I think it was dated 1200? Uh, around that time. Yeah, 1200 BC, that they actually look like an army. I mean, they have the same uniform, the same lunch bag. They have their lunch kit there. They're the same panel piece, you know, their same armor. Uh, so they, that far back, they figured out, you know, you want to get people to have unit cohesion. You dress them alike. Mm-hmm. It does look a little bit. It looks a little bit like they're uh, wearing 1970s athletic socks pulled up above their knees. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the Michael Jordan thing with the black socks. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) sort of fascinating. Uh, That's and the colanders on their head. But other than that, they do look intimidating. So, Uh, uh, one more uh, before I don't want to run out of time here, but the. I was thinking about one other kind of example would be, or is it maybe, does this count? Mobs. Like I'm thinking about like the 1930s uh, Universal films because I just came back from watching The Mummy last night and it got my mind on the idea of mobs as minions. Um, the, uh, it was, you know, the, the as soon as you told people there was a monster in a building, you know, you could get the villagers together. In this case, most of the time it was the Burgomaster pulling together some German village. Uh, everybody grabs their, you know, farming utensils and some, uh, you know, uh, lit torches and off they go. Uh, would you consider those to be henchmen or is that, a, is a mob something different? Well, you can have flash henchmen, right? It is, they come together for one a- action at one time versus professional henchmen who like, this is what they do for a living. But yeah, the, the mob, you know, going after Castle Frankenstein or whatever it, it is, is exactly what you're, you're, you're talking about. And these particular instances, the other thing is that, you know, you, you describe that they, they often are, they look very similar, like they're all from the same class, right? Uh, they often have very similar weapons, and they have this one sort of similar goal. They also tend to be startlingly ineffective. You know, like usually the monster like breaks loose from the castle and just runs through those villagers. You know, tossing them in every direction. Right. Uh, <laughs> I think that I would say that the main difference between henchmen and a mob would be that henchmen typically are loyal to a leader, and a mob is loyal to a cause. Right. Oh, well said. Yeah, Although I still sense. want to call this episode uh, uh, Minions, Mobs, and Myrmidons. So. <laughs> we did <laughs> the alliteration. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We like that. <laughs> because it's so literary. <laughs> yeah. Did you have any other questions that you wanted to ask or any anything else you'd, you'd like to address? Because we've got a final question when we're. Well, I think that's the, the sort of my. Kate brought up the. the, the in the ancient world, the word hero was not attached to a particular moral point of view. It was just attached to heroic status. I mean, larger than life, literally, demigod. And we live in a, a time now where, I, obviously, we cannot afford that ethic. <laughs> the decisions we're making as individuals and society are affecting everything, including like the fate of the planet, you know, the, 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 the health of our species. And so I think we do have to ask these questions about henchmen and that to recognize our individual susceptibility to becoming henchmen and to justifying it. Because we have so many examples of people who maybe didn't start out as evil, 
You know, they weren't the, the, the demigods, the heroes were born demigods. I mean, you, you couldn't like turn it down. No, well, I'm sorry, my mother is a god, but I just don't feel like being a hero. No, you were born to be a hero. But we have the choice. At least I like to think we have the choice to be a henchman or to not be a henchman. And I hope for the sake of everybody that uh, in the future, humanity makes the right choice more often than we have in the past. I hope so, too. <laughs> we hope too. This is a question I probably should have asked a bit earlier on when we were talking about definitions of henchmen. But uh, it just seems to me like uh, the, the numbers of henchmen can vary. Sometimes you could have very few, almost like having a, even a right-hand man who's going to do all of your dirty work for you through to hundreds or thousands of people. Um, is there a, a number uh, that sort of quantifies henchmen at all? I, I wouldn't say that um, the concept of a henchman is limited in terms of number, either high or small. So um, the army of the Myrmidons is significant in in size as a, as a military force. Do we know how many? I mean, were they were they a platoon or were they a regiment? I mean, in, uh, in the movie, uh, the Brad Pitt movie, which I love, you know, it, it, in, if you've ever seen it. Um, they're approaching Troy, and of course, Brad Pitt with his Myrmidons. I can't think of anybody being. Which Achilles movie was this? Uh, Mr. and Mrs. Myth. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. Exactly. Uh, uh, Inglorious Bastards. No. <laughs> so In, no, sorry, the, you, Troy. Troy. The, the, Troy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So there, the the ship is, is is with the Myrmidons on it is approaching Troy, and my sense was that they all fit into one ship, right? There was like, a, well, it was like I mean, 30 of them. It, it, it's hard to, to say because um, in the Iliad, they're actually broken down into sub-squads as well. And it's not made especially clear how many of them there are. Um, and it's further complicated by the fact that um, it comes down through oral tradition, and we don't really have a very strong idea of the scale of warfare from the time period that this originates. But it seems like there was a significant enough number that it wasn't necessarily Achilles directly controlling all of them. He had sort of lieutenants among the Myrmidons who controlled their own units of the men. In comparison, you know, as we've talked about in the 20th century, you could make an argument that there were nations that had millions of Myrmidons, you know, millions of henchmen to do their their dirty work. I mean, the the Stalinist death machine, the Gulag Archipelago, as Solzhenitsyn put it, I mean, there were there were tens of millions of people who worked very hard, you know, eight to five to make it work. Mm-hmm. And I, I imagine that the the view of someone or some group of people being minions was probably entirely dependent upon the perspective of what your position is in the conflict. So if you were a Zulu warrior trying to drive out the British, you would have your own heroes and know who people were. But for the British, it probably all looked like a giant wave of, of minions. So that sort of uh, framing of, of, of that role is probably one that's deeply dependent upon your cultural perspective. Yeah, there's a visual cue, you know, the, the, the farther away something is, the more bloody, I'm sorry, uh, more um, uh, fuzzy and uniform it is, right? So you, you're, actually, you're, you're right. I mean, the Zulus had a very complicated system of regiments of uh, uh, actually by birth year, you know, I mean, there was people who were all the same age and they're very, very successful system. And 
but from the point of view of a British soldier, you just saw a lot of natives in headdresses with spears and shields coming towards you. You didn't make those individual uh, uh, distinctions. And, of course, that, that sort of is a natural visual principle that helps us dehumanize an enemy, right, if we just see them as sort of interchangeable and, and all alike. So I think you've made a, a good point that, that from a distance, everybody else is a henchman. Right, and then the, I'm sure the Zulu saw all the British looking the same. You know, I mean, just it, exactly the uniforms feeding right into that, but... Um, all about perspectives. Yeah, it, it really, it, it, and which is why empathy is so important. I mean, it's why it's so important to not uh, alienate and dehumanize and demonize uh, people, because mm-hmm. with the I would say with the possible exception of sociopaths, uh, you know, generally your average person <laughs> on the street is going to also have their own perspective, their own views, and their own motivations for everything they do. And yep. when you see that these people have like rolled that up and have become part of a of a henchman or a mob or a or, or whatever, that uh, it becomes frightening because no longer are you able to necessarily discern their motivations or understand why they're doing what they're doing. Yep, makes predicting it very scary. Absolutely. Well, uh, I guess we'll do the final question. Uh, we we have a question that we always like to ask our guests. So David and Kate. What are your favorite monsters? <laughs> well, uh, I, I've always been fascinated by automatons. You know, we didn't get a chance to talk about that much, but, but the sort of uh, ancient mechanical men. Uh, the, the Greeks, of course, had invented the steam engine. They understood the principles of steam, and, and they used steam for many things, including uh, pneumatic doors and temples and toys. And it's sort of an interesting speculation if somebody had spent a little bit more time in industry to to figure out how to use these things. You know, we might have had trains in the ancient world. But uh, the the Ray Harryhausen, you know, Clash of the Titans. Talos? Where the, or, or, yeah. Or, the, sorry, the no, that's, a, that's not Clash of the Titans. That's uh, Jason and the Argonauts. Yeah, Jason and the Argonauts. Thank you. It, 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 the idea of robots and mechanical men and there's a very famous episode of Doctor Who, the, the – the, um, Doctor Who, Tom Baker, Doctor Who, <laughs> called I think it's the Robots of Terror, in which he finds himself uh, with his assistant on a space mining ship on a planet, and people are being killed one by one, and it it, it turns out they're being killed by by robots, and they talk about the idea of robots eventually being able to make moral choices and and looking like humans and and of course we're facing a future where you know we you know 20 years from now i guess this podcast will just be robots interviewing other robots right because already is (laughs) (laughs) sure as soon as robots can figure out how to do puns properly but that'll never happen (laughs) (laughs) that's our defense is puns I, I'm my entire life is based on that premise. Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, sound, sound. Uh, I guess that I would have to say probably if I had to to pick a monster, that uh, I find the Gorgons like Medusa really fascinating because it's an interesting insight into sort of insecurity uh, among the ancients about powerful women. Uh, this. You know, you look at her and you turn to stone. There's utter helplessness involved on the the victim's part. And the way that, you know, their characters can be very complex. I mean, Medusa in some texts is is considered beautiful. Uh, In others, she's hideous. Uh, So I I, I guess I'd go with Gorgons. I think that they are underappreciated. And they're classic. 
So. Yeah. And we've never had that as an answer before, I think. I don't think Either so, of yeah, those. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I love Gorgons and I love mythology. And and I thought I, 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 I wanted to squeeze this in there, but uh, when you said the Greeks had steam engines, I was thinking, we keep talking about the heroics. <laughs> Because it's, you know, heroes, steam engine. Anyway, that's uh, I just, see, now I have to fix that. Bring the post. robots on now, I say. <laughs> it can't happen soon enough. <laughs> so oh, when will we guys. be replacing this show with robots? Soon, really soon. Mm-hmm. And it's going to be great. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. This was a really interesting topic and something totally new never be able to tell this is fantastic i i really appreciate you guys coming on and talking to us monster talk you've been listening to monster talk the science show about monsters i'm blake smith and i'm karen Stolzner. you just heard an interview with dr david perlmutter and kate mongrain about minions mobs and myrmidons hopefully the next time you see the joker's minions and the little yellow guys who help out grew you'll reflect on the ancient tradition of these mobs of followers Monster Talk is an official podcast of Skeptic Magazine. The views and opinions expressed on this show are those of myself and my guests and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Skeptic Magazine or the Skeptic Society. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Monster Talk. Each episode, we strive to bring you the best in monster-related content with a focus on bringing scientific skepticism into the conversation. If you enjoy Monster Talk, we now have a variety of ways to support the show all with convenient links at monstertalk.org forward slash support. That's monstertalk.org forward slash support. There we have links to our Patreon pages as well as a donation button. A great way to support the show is to buy us books from our Amazon Monster Talk wish list, which directly helps us with our research. We love used books very much, so don't feel compelled to buy new ones. And we love Kindle, and we can share our digital library with each other. Finally, without spending any money at all, you can support us by leaving a positive review at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Positive reviews help keep us visible in iTunes, which is a great way to help us find new listeners. And please, share our show on your favorite social media platforms. As I mentioned at the beginning of the show, if you'll be at CryptidCon in September, be sure to drop by and say hello. I'll be giving a talk about science and monsters. I'm also hoping to attend DragonCon in September as a guest, but that's still up in the air. More on that when I have more news. Also, if you have questions or comments, you can reach out to us on our Facebook page. Speaking of Facebook, I want to take a moment to thank James M. Neeland for all the time he puts into helping manage the Monster Talk Facebook page. He does a fantastic job of helping to moderate the group and keep out trolls and promote friendly monster-related discussions that celebrate monsters without trapping visitors in the echo chamber of self-perpetuating nonsense that describes so much of monster content on social media. And you can always email us. Blake at monstertalk.org goes right to me. And Karen at monstertalk.org goes right to, you guessed it, Karen. We love to hear from you, our listeners. That's why we do the show. Monster Talk theme music is by Peach Stealing Monkeys. Thanks again for listening.
Did you know that you can now subscribe to Skeptic Magazine digitally? Just grab our free Skeptic Magazine app, currently compatible with iOS, Android, PC, Mac, Kindle Fire, Kindle Fire HD, and BlackBerry Playbook. Head over to skeptic.com slash magazine slash app to find out more and download more of your favorite Skeptic content. I, I, Hinchman are, uh, they're, they, I guess they quickly fill that niche, uh, our niche, our niche, our niche. I'm not sure. Niche, yeah. niche. I say niche, but maybe that's fancy. I don't know. Okay, forget about that part. I'll cut it out. <laughs> <laughs> lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.